Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's esoteric? My Hitlerisms. Shit, that is two Hitler starts in a row. Ah, fuck Jesus, it. Robert. Um, well, it, Come it, on. it fits with this episode. This is Behind the Bastards, a podcast about the worst people in all of history. I'm Robert Evans. I'm the host. And my guest today is Jamie. Hi. I just the go by Jamie one Loftus. name now. I'm <laughs> the Beyonce of... No, Billy Wayne's the Beyonce of Behind the Bastards. Yeah. You you are the mm-hmm. podcaster formerly known Something. as the Beyonce of Behind the Bastards. Yeah. You're the yeah. Beyonce of my heart. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, there we go. Thank you. There we go. Oh, Jamie, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. I uh, I think that that's true. I'm good. I have to yeah, add. I have to add. Probably a, good. I have to add a bag to my Spirit Airlines flight, but that's about as as challenging as it's getting today. Speaking of monsters, that is the greatest monster of all. <laughs> Pay to breathe. Online interface. Yeah, you have to like swipe your credit card if you sneeze on a Spirit Airlines. Flight. <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, <laughs> I have this friend. His name is Lenny, and he listens to the podcast, so he may hear this. And Lenny Hi. is uh, one of the one of the most experienced travelers I know. And at one point, I was taking a flight with him in Eastern Europe to Ukraine through Wizz Air, which is one of the worst airlines oh, on the I've, planet. I, I've heard um, of Wizz Air. Yeah, they're terrible. Never had the and- pleasure. <laughs> There was a moment where they started hassling us about our bags and it became clear that we weren't going to be able to like fit everything like that we were going to have to take stuff out. And the line from him that I'll never forget was, I guess, well, I guess I'm wearing all my pants today. 
<laughs> I've worn multiple <laughs> pairs of pants on. How, if you're yeah. not going onto a Spirit uh, Airlines flight wearing five jackets, like, yeah. what are you even, you're, you're robbing you yourself. You're, I've been on a Spirit Airlines red eye next to, like, an actively drunk person <laughs> multiple times. Well, no, that's like, just normal. I know, but it's if like, you, yeah, you're right. If you haven't right. wept if you haven't wept and thrown things away while waiting to get in line at Spirit Airlines, have you even flown? <laughs> We've uh, gotten off topic. Um, very off topic. Jamie. Yes. Have you ever heard of Savitri Devi? No. Oh, good. Oh, boy. Jamie, you are in for a motherfucking treat. Ooh, I love when you yeah. don't tell me in advance. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is one I'm going to guess almost nobody listening to has heard of, but she's one of the most important people for understanding where we are right now in the year 2020. Okay. Um, like the most, the most recent headline that ties directly to her is you remember when the FBI arrested all those members of the base, that, that neo-Nazi group that was planning to start a second civil war by randomly firing into a crowd in Virginia that was full of armed people. You yes. That whole, that yeah. whole hullabaloo. Yes. Yeah. Well, she's kind of behind all that, although she died decades before it happened. So that's today's story. Nice. Let's do it. So now, Jamie, we're going to start like we start every good day by talking about our little buddy. Shouldn't call him a buddy. Adolf Hitler. Okay. It's weird because I can call Stalin a buddy, but I, I feel, feel like, like calling I'll... Hitler a buddy is a bridge too far. I don't know. On this show, I feel like there are just rules that are different. Yeah, they're they're old friends at this point. So yeah. Hitler was at his Who was core. He? A, he was a secular ruler, Jamie. Oh, um, okay. He was not a not a not a not a like. I think I think there's a lot of misconceptions about kind of the nature of of his power and like his regime because of all of these like History Channel documentaries and this industry of books on Nazi occult history and like Nazi magic and the Hellboy movies. Oh, <laughs> but, love like, to hear it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're great movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least one of them is. But um, like this idea that like <laughs> I haven't seen them. the Nazis were like full of full of magic right and that hitler like believed all sorts of like weird kooky uh occult stuff about like raising the dead and 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 aliens and shit and -hmm. it's just not true um there were some funky occult ties to national socialism um, but there were people phrase oh yeah yeah oh yeah funky Funky. occult ties yeah baby yeah, but they weren't to Hitler. They were to like kind of like side figures, like the B list of the Nazis. A lot of those guys were mm. kind of into the occult, but like your A listers really were 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 pretty secular guys. The Beyonces, yeah. the Nazi Beyonces, as yeah. opposed to I'm trying to think of like like the the Halsies. Nazi Jeremy Renners, the Halls. Oh, how dare you speak his name <laughs> in this forum? I thought we we made a pact to never speak of him again. We we never signed that contract. We never you did. It, it was under negotiation a for a long time. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well. it is still in arbitration. <laughs> now, uh, the Tula Society, uh, uh, spelled Thule Society, like the top racks on people's jeeps, okay. uh, was it? Well, 
Subarus, people Subarus. Um, the the Tula Society was a German occult group in the early 20th century uh, in Germany, um, and it provided some of the early funding and leadership for the Nazi party. Heinrich Himmler held bizarre quasi-magical beliefs for his whole time in power, and he was kind of into some weird, he thought he was like a reincarnated prince and some shit. Sure. But Hitler himself was not at all into occult stuff. Um, and it, the only guy really close to him who was, was Rudolf Hess, who was his deputy, and for mm-hmm. a long time his best friend. This this is the guy he like co-wrote Mein Kampf with. Like Hess and Hitler are like fucking tight before Hitler comes his to ghost, power. His 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 like his ghostwriter. Yeah, kind of like more okay. like his um his muse. Yeah, and also oh. the guy who was a competent typist. Both. Of I those mean, things. you gotta you gotta you, if if your muse is also a competent typist. Yeah. Who says the perfect person doesn't exist? Yeah, Rudolf Hess. That's what people say about Rudolf Hess, is he was the perfect person. So, (laughs) he was also the deputy Fuhrer for a while. (laughs) Oh, sick, 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 Um, sick. Yeah, he was a cool dude. Um, But he wasn't really in the picture for very long. He got increasingly marginalized after Hitler came to power in 33. Um, And in 1941, he kind of went bug fuck uh and got on a plane and flew to great britain while the two countries were at war sorry sorry and sorry. uh how would you define bug fuck <laughs> i would define bug fuck as like independently hopping in your private plane and flying to a country that your country is actively bombing to try to parachute down and negotiate for peace between your two nations without That's anyone asking you, would you define to bug fuck <laughs> I would describe that as pretty bug fuck. Yeah, that's I, that's not. This is like a new term for me, and now this is the only like reference point I have for it. So I'm not going to know how to <laughs> how to define bug fuck moving forward. Okay, so bug fuck is when like the world is pa- falling apart, and you're like fuck it, and you and you go the fuck off, and then you is that it? Kind of, yeah. Like it was the kind of thing where, like, there was no chance of it ever working. He did not have the authority to 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 sign a peace treaty for Germany, mm-hmm. uh, and Britain did not have any interest in talking with him or making peace with Germany at this point. Sick. Um, so he basically just flew and crash landed in England and got arrested and spent the rest of his life in prison. Very bug um, fuck. And of it was him. a a huge embarrassment for Hitler because this this is like his right hand man who in the middle of the war like flies to his enemy's country to like try to negotiate without Hitler's approval it was it was very weird um and because Hess was like this occult dude into astrology and all this shit and like this weird he was actually kind of like a Buddhist like he's a weird dude um but because he held all these weird beliefs and he pissed off Hitler so badly Hitler bans like all of this weird occult shit that had cropped up around the nazi party in 1941 okay so yeah so after 41 like really most of that stuff is illegal heinrich himmler gets up to a little bit of it with the ss because he's got a castle and he he's just a weird dude Mm -hmm. we'll get into some of that in a later episode the important thing to understand is that like yeah hitler was like a distinctly not wooey guy like he's not a new age sort of dude He's like a guy, um, if you mention and, your, like, if I, he's like the guys on Reddit who, like, if you mention, you so much as mention your Zodiac sign, they're like, she's not credible. She's fun. She's a, <laughs> she's lost yes, it. Like yes. Like, I love that type yes. of person. And I, I, I feel confident saying that 100% of Hitler's biographers agree he would have been extremely on Reddit. 
I, like oh, more on for, Reddit than anyone has ever been on Reddit. Sure. Yeah. No, he would be yeah. the most Reddity guy of, of all of them. And we have to admit yeah. that that is very, what's his sign? <laughs> that's, uh. <laughs> that, that's very his sign of him, wouldn't you say? I don't know. He's such a Taurus. But He's such sure. a Taurus. Sure. Okay, that's, continue. That's... I assume you're referring to the maker of really shoddy handguns, uh, no. <laughs> which is, I think they're Brazilian. Uh, terrible guns. Taurus? Um, oh, okay. No, I'm just trying to get oh, yeah, canceled horrible. on the Behind the Bastards board. <laughs> Never. Well, Never. Either way, Never. advocating the Taurus sign or the Taurus firearms brand is not going to go well for you. Okay, fair. Um, <laughs> so, um yeah so it, now hitler so he's not into the occult at all he's not a big fan of christianity either um he felt it was fundamentally jewish because jesus was jewish which is you know not an irrational point of view within the logic of being a nazi uh and he worried huh. it weakened the german people but he also respected christianity for its ability to inculcate good values in the german people uh and the primary good value it inculcated was making lots of babies because most germans were catholic and catholics aren't big fans of condoms i'm not not sure if you're aware of that um, um no i em. know i wouldn't have aunts yeah. if it weren't for this attitude none of us would yeah. Now, uh, Hitler himself was a baptized Roman Catholic all his life. He probably didn't really believe much of anything other than that that Hitler was a cool dude. Mm -hmm. um, but he felt it was important to maintain this image. Um, now, there were some among his followers that thought it was Nazism's destiny to become the new great German religion, but Hitler himself pushed back against this, insisting in Mein Kampf that National Socialism, quote, is not a religious reform, but a political reorganization of the German people. Mm -hmm. He believed, quote, it is criminal to try to destroy the accepted faith of the people as long as there is nothing to replace it. Okay. And it is possible that given enough time, Hitler would have tried to replace Christianity with something else, but he never attempted to do so, and as far as we know, the supernatural as it's generally known, played very little role in the Nazi regime. Mm. But, and here's where the real episode starts. Ooh. In the decades since Hitler shot himself in that bunker in 1945, Nazism has changed quite a lot. The actual political and historic beliefs of the original Nazis and of Hitler himself have been twisted and shifted into something even weirder. It would be too much to say that this new form of Nazism is more dangerous than the original, given the tens of millions of people who died from the original Nazism. Mm -hmm. But it's probably accurate to say that the fact that Nazism has mutated into what we call esoteric Hitlerism um, has made it better able to survive in the era of the internet. Okay. Now, esoteric Hitlerism is a term used to refer to a number of different strains of post-war Nazi thought that put a bizarre religious and occult spin on Nazi racial theories and on Hitler himself, often seeing the man as essentially the avatar of a god. Uh, 4chan and 8chan are, in the modern age, two of the most prolific vectors for this, the spread of this brand of nonsense. Sure. There are strains of it in Brenton Tarrant's manifesto and in Anders Breivik's manifesto. Sure. And today, we're talking about the woman who invented all of this. The single person who became the living link between the Nazism that tried and failed to conquer Europe and the modern Nazi movement that spawns mass shootings and attempted mass shootings on a monthly basis today. Her name was <laughs> Savitri Devi, and she was a huge piece of shit. This is someone's feminism somewhere. Yeah. This is some piece of shit's feminism. She is a feminist icon, She's Jamie. She's a feminist icon. Feminism is the law now. Mm-hmm. This is a woman who spent her whole life living alone with a pile of cats and changing Nazism forever. 
Okay, well, what if she just did the first half, you know? That was not... <laughs> She was not willing to do just the first half. <laughs> she was like, okay, so I'm in a pile of cats. That's great. Yeah. What else could yeah. I do? And that was her second idea. That's embarrassing. That was her second idea. Was Nazism. It does. She does start first focused on the cats and then move straight to Nazism, though. Mm-hmm. It's, it's remarkable. Yeah. Ugh. So she was born uh, Maximiani Portas uh, on September 30th, 1905 in Lyon, France. Her mother, Julia, came from Cornwall, the town with the 36th dumbest name in all of England. Mm. Her father's ancestry was a melange of various Mediterranean peoples without access to birth control. He was mostly Italian and Greek, although young Maximiani was born a French citizen. She latched onto her father's Greek ancestry from the very beginning. Hmm. Some of this had to do with the fact that Leon had a large and active Greek expat community, and her dad was a prominent member of it. Hmm. She also nursed an early fascination with Roman history. Her name, Maximiani, was actually just the female form of Maximian, the proper first name of the emperor Marcus Aurelius. So she's a, she's a big old nerd. I really have to emphasize what a nerd she is. I feel like I've met versions of yeah. this girl in, like, sophomore English classes and they're like actually something something and you're like stop it stop it please just like finish reading their eyes we're watching God let's move on I was the male version of this for a while I mean I took three years of Latin because I was such a a Roman history nerd okay Robert some of us took five years of Latin and do we remember a fucking thing of course not no no (laughs) I not, not. not a goddamn word I liked, like when I was um, in high school, like in junior high and high school, if you were like in the quote unquote yeah. advanced classes, they would be like, let's teach them a language they can't use. It's so stupid. Yeah. God damn it. Totally useless term. Did you have to use that? I mean, that, it's one of those. Huh? Wait, did you have to use that textbook that was about the, the Romani family? Did you do Eke Romani? Oh, no, no, man. My, I was like fucking Caecilius and Quintus. I remember those names. They were like the fucking, the, it was like a bunch of Pompeii people who all uh, die at the end of the book our, our system, <laughs> everyone died at the end of our textbook <laughs> that's not wait was it like the, we had uh, we had the ruled. we had the cornelii family it was like cornelia and her brother marcus and then they had a friend named sextus who no was they, they sound like fucking losers they weren't no, they, it was well, fucking caecilius for me there, your your family sounds way better because our family there was like three books in total and the whole second book, so like all of eighth and ninth grade, they're just stuck in a ditch. They're like in a ditch. Their carriage is in a ditch. They can't get out. They're staying at an inn. The innkeeper's yelling at them. They're stuck in a ditch. They're stuck in a ditch for a whole month, and then they go to Rome and and, and everything is fine. That sounds like a nightmare. Second, well, yeah, nightmare. Yeah, it was so horrible. Maximiani would have gotten along. Well, no, she wouldn't have. She would have been the most annoying person in our Latin class. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like yeah, when people are in the Latin class and they're also like into it. I'm like, mm, we should I be learning a real language. I you didn't have to learn to pronounce anything. Right. You never had to speak yeah, it that's because the beauty there was no of a dead practical yeah. reason to speak it. Well, no one knows either. Like, you've got ecclesiastical Latin, but there's no way to know if it was exactly the same as what the Romans spoke, so we just didn't give a shit. It was great. Yeah, my my Ugh. teacher, Miss Cook, would come and she would, what was the thing she would say? She was like, um, okay, discipuli et dis, discipuli. Like, she'd be like, hello, students, let's learn Julius Caesar. And then we would just talk about how the family was stuck in the ditch all day. Mm. All day. Horrible. Yeah. Well, 
Maximiani spent her young life stuck in that ditch, and that ditch was called being a huge nerd for Mediterranean classical civilizations. Um, Got it. She was a strong-willed child, which here is a synonym for unspeakably arrogant and a giant pain in the ass. Sure. She felt strongly about just about everything. uh, That is how they describe annoying children. On everything. Yeah. Yeah, Strong-willed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was known to be utterly immovable once she'd latched onto an idea. Uh, one strong opinion she developed early was that British people were terrible, which is not inaccurate. Uh, mm-hmm. She hated her mother's English friends and the way they prattled on about illnesses and their dying families. Uh, <laughs> harsh. Oh my God. <laughs> That's so harsh. She's like, I wish my family I mean, wasn't dying. And she's like, shut up. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> we <English>. get it. <laughs> she didn't like French people very much either. And the particular cause for her hatred of the French was the French Revolution. She read about it as a little girl in school and was instantly furious. The Republican ideals of equality, liberty, and fraternity disgusted her. Mm -hmm. She was punished at school for making an obscene gesture at a plaque of the Declaration of the Rights of Man. (laughs) And again, she's like eight or nine. Yeah, she's like a fucking little kid at this point. That is... (laughs) that is so funny. Yeah. The Declaration of the Rights of Man, which small child Savitri Devi flipped off, uh, includes such controversial takes as people are innocent until proven guilty. People have the right to liberty, property, security, and resistance to oppression. And people uh, should be able to speak and write with freedom. <laughs> wow. Some real hot she takes hates being thrown shit. out there. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. So she was like born to be harmful she was born to be a fascist she like was, she as a small child she's like people aren't equal what is this bullshit she, uh, that's so yeah. ugh. the little flipping off to yeah. human rights you do you do feel yeah. like we should have known we should have known i mean i love flipping off old documents too but to me it's the magna carta and the magna carta knows why the magna the carta end. knows what she did and oh yeah, the Magna yeah. Carta shakes in her boots whenever you come walking. The Magna by. Carta is a messy bitch, and I have no time for it. The, okay, no Robert, gee, wow. I can't believe you just called yeah. a female document a bitch. A messy. You're setting a bad example, Robert. Feminism this is, is document the law now. misogyny. <laughs> it's just she's she's literally shaking right now. She's here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh no! She's in the room with you. Me. Didn't tell me the Magna Carta was in the room today. She's Sophie. literally. She drove me here. She, horrible. She's well. I don't have uh, a driver's license. I don't know what you want. <laughs> I, I don't know how much further to take this bit, Jamie. So I'm just kind of. <laughs> Later in life, in 1978, Savitri Devi told an interviewer, a beautiful girl is not equal to an ugly girl. So she remained pretty consistent about her belief in the fundamental inequality of human beings, like her whole life. And she's getting really granular about it, too. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She's granular about fucking everything. Now, the chief motivating factor in her childhood, I have to say, was completely understandable. She felt a deep, powerful sense of rage at the abuse of animals by human beings. Okay. Starting at age five, yeah, starting at age five, she began expressing to her parents concern at the abuse of animals she witnessed in a daily basis. She was horrified by circuses, the fur trade, and the eating of meat. While still in elementary school, she became a committed vegetarian and eventually a vegan. 
Maximiani Portus was particularly disgusted by the abuse of cats by peasants on the French countryside. Mm. Her only real biographer, Nicholas Goodrick Clark, claims this, quote, disgusted her and turned her against mankind. And since most people listening probably don't know anything about the history of cat torture in Europe, I didn't know anything about the history of cat torture in Europe. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to talk about that now for a little while. It's oh, like a no. thing, Jamie. Okay, Fucking, so like, a sp- like specific to this region? Cat torture? All of Europe, really, but like, yeah, specifically to France. Like, the French oh fucking God. hate cats, historically. Okay, all right, I'm listening. They are assholes about cats. Okay. Yeah. Uh, today, we rightly revere cats as our moral and su- intellectual superiors, and we have organized our society around pleasing them. This is right and good, but cats have not always been beloved in the West. Uh, while they are considered basically holy in Islam, they're like ritually clean, like you can have them in, in mosques and stuff all over the place, you don't have to wash your hands after touching them if you're going to go pray. There's a long Christian tradition of seeing cats as demonic entities. Uh, and to be fair, Islam is kind of shitty on the subject of dogs. So I guess whatever of the big religions you pick, you're going to be terrible to one of the good animals. Okay. I don't know why. Oh, no. Yeah, it's weird. Now, in the 15th century, Edward, Duke of York, announced that if the devil inhabited any living animal, it was the cat. Mm-hmm. And for centuries, all around Europe, good Christians tortured and murdered cats for almost no reason. In Ypres, Belgium, they held an event called Kattenstoat, the Festival of Cats, which sounds awesome, but actually just involved drunken townsfolk throwing cats from the top of the church onto hard cobblestones and then lighting them on fire. No! Kattenstoat, yeah, yep. I yep. hate, okay, it's always really frustrating when you hear a story about the underclass and it's like you're playing mm-hmm. to stereotypes about the underclass. Yeah. Don't Some throw of those stereotypes cats on the exist- pavement. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be honest, I bet the rich people got to go up first and throw the nicest cats. Just to set a good, yeah, and then, yeah, uh, yeah, and then yeah. they would privately be throwing cats at hard marble floors as well. Yeah. My God. It's horrible. And Cat and Stoat still takes place in Ypres every May, but they use stuffed animals now, which just stop. Just just stop. It's not a good tradition. It would <laughs> be like, so easy to not do it. It would be so easy. Do they do yeah. do they eat the cat like do they or is it just we're just killing the cats? Not that that makes it better. Oh no, it's just, no, they're just murdering cats for okay. no good reason. Okay, that's it's fun. That is worse. And people are horrible. But Jamie, yes. you know who doesn't randomly torture cats in Belgium? your sponsors you don't that know that is exactly right no we do you don't know that sophie vets every sponsor to make sure they do not torture cats in belgium yes is that that's true mm-hmm. that's robert okay. doesn't lie robert i okay okay it is a small country so the vetting's pretty easy <laughs> like you'll notice i did not say for example canada no, you certainly didn't. True there. bastard. No, I did not. Canada. <laughs> wow. Canada <laughs> just got canceled before our very eyes. Products. Okay. Products. <laughs> the evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. 
The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. My favorite spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. Wow, how have I been living like this? It's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless, when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. Wow, how have I been affording this? It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. Say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills, and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash behind. That's mintmobile.com slash behind. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash behind. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We've all got a lot going on right now, especially this year. A lot of stress, different stresses, big things, small things, medium things, family things, friend things, loved one things, just, you know, things. And when we keep those things bottled up, they can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a good way to get those things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. Therapy's helped me learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. And therapy can empower you to be, you know, a better or at least happier version of yourself. It's not just for people who have experienced trauma or who are dealing with something immediate and serious. It can just be a way to kind of perform maintenance on your own person. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash behind today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash behind. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back! Jamie! Yeah! Those were good ads. Good ads. Jamie! Good, Good products. 
after all those good ads, are you ready to hear more about the systematic torture of cats by generations <sighs> of Europeans? I just got a cat, Robert. This is not fair. I love cats. Oh my god, cats shout my out favorite. Flea. Shout out to Flea, my cat. He's got a big neck. Wanna say about my also, cat? He's got a big neck. <laughs> shout out to Roach, one of the side characters in uh the the first version of the movie with Keanu Reeves where some of the people are bank robbers, but they're Wait, also what? surfers. Oh, 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 oh. You're talking about the Keanu Reeves surfing movie with, um, with yes, what's his name? We've yes, covered it on yes. the Bechtelcast. What is it called? Yes, Roach, B- Roach is the one who bleeds out in a plane. Point Break? He's a good character. We're talking, huh? about, are we talking about Point Break? Yes, Point Break. Yes. That's the movie. A classic. Yes. Now, uh, in France, there was a centuries-old tradition of burning hundreds of cats to death in gigantic bonfires. Awful. Louis the Sixteenth even famously lit Paris's cat fire in 1648. Uh, Brûlère les chats. The uh, king set the called. cat fire. Yeah, of course. Who else, Jamie? Who this else? Is, <laughs> this is just all news to me. Just I, I just yes, it was news to me too. I okay. I'm gl- I I'm glad that this wasn't like common knowledge. I would be horrified if I just didn't yeah. know even burning cats. Okay, I. It, it, it like it doesn't surprise like obviously like you have to assume earlier times people are more callous to cats and dogs because it them being like what they are now is kind of a more recent development because we have all these extra resources but sure. i didn't realize it was this like cruel this is um, a lot yeah the king is so setting the, the cat fire that's like bad writing Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the king would, would yeah, so Brule Le Chats, which I am not going to pronounce more correctly than that because it's a horrible thing and fuck, fuck France, mm-hmm. uh, as it was called, um, varied in a number of different ways. Sometimes it was just massive bonfires uh, where living cats were tied uh, together in like huge pyres. Sometimes living cats were tied above small fires on like a spit and then roasted to death. Sometimes cats were set in wooden cages and burnt to death. Uh, in some towns, uh, people known as Koremauts, uh cat chasers, would soak cats in fuel, light them on fire, and chase them through town to the amusement of citizens. People wonder why cats remains... are so upset all the time. I know, right? They have, <laughs> they're an oppressed species. Yes, they are. Yeah, I would uh, be pissed. We, you should be. I I'm am. pissed. I am. The charred remains of these tortured cats were taken home as good luck charms by people. In 1730, as revolutionary sentiment simmered and bubbled throughout French society, two Parisian apprentice printers got fed up with their masters and abducted their cats. Mm-hmm. They staged a massive public trial, the Great Cat Massacre, as it's become known to history. Uh, now, this was tied more towards issues of class hatred than hatred of cats, um, but the cats wound up actually like. But they end up being the, the scape the cats yeah, for exactly. the whole situation. Exactly. I, but that, and that's also the worst way to die as a, as a symbol for something. Com- that has nothing to do with you. Yeah, those cats have no understanding of class theory. It's like if someone <laughs> like, like murdered they, they me and then they were yeah. like, well, this has something to do with like my opinion on the new Taylor Swift record. It has nothing to do with Jamie, but I killed her it's, as to send a message. It, it would be like if one group of aliens came to Earth and murdered you for something they knew human beings were going to do 100 years in the future, something you're completely incapable of understanding or knowing about. Yeah. Like, just, yeah, this, like, it's just wild. But these apprentices Ugh. felt their masters treated the family cats better than their workers. Mm-hmm. Um, and because they couldn't quite 
you know, murder their bosses. Uh, they got a crowd together and they captured a bunch of rich people's cats and then they put them on trial and sentenced them, them to be hung until dead. And they hung just a fuckload of cats to death. That is. Um, they made like the owners of the cats watch. It was super fucked up. I don't know what to do right now. <laughs> Well, I'm I think what attack. you can do right now is you can get a little bit into the head of a sensitive young soul like Maximiani Portas, because a lot of this stuff was still going on in France. It wasn't at its worst, but like cat torture and burning was still happening in the countryside. And she sees this as a little girl and is like, this is part of why she hates those like, you know, French revolutionary values of freedom and equality is she's like, well, clearly this is all bullshit. Look at what they're doing to these animals. Like, where's their... <laughs> you know equality and freedom and like 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 she that's kind of like where she comes at this from right yeah um yeah so she's deeply sympathetic to animals and particularly cats and basically incapable of being sympathetic to human beings um and yeah it's uh, an interesting story i'm gonna be interested in how she galaxy brains being sympathetic towards the plight of 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 brutally murdered cats to becoming yeah a fascist but you know, I fascism think it's finds a pretty a way. common thing for fascists, to be honest. Like cat, it's common for cat all of us to fascism. Well, you know, it, not committing cat murders, but like no. hating people because of how garbage they are, and thinking fascism is the only way it's to fix solution. things because people just can't be allowed to 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 live on their own. Okay, I knew that. So I shitty. thought I thought you were saying yeah. cat specific reasons. I'm like, well, this is a true education. Yeah. Now, Maximiani was very good in school. She was a bright student. Uh, she read and wrote constantly, and her very favorite writer was a, uh, a 19th century French poet named Charles Leconte de Lisle. Uh, and here's how Savitri's biographer describes Leconte de Lisle's work in the book Hitler's Priestess, which is really the only decent biography of Savitri Devi. Interesting. Quote, Leconte de Lisle's own tragic view of the universe, his romantic colors were always tinged with somber pessimism, strongly appealed to Maximiani. He regarded all religious symbols as fragments of a divine truth, but the profusion of faiths over time convinced him of the relative value and ultimate vanity of every doctrine. Beset by a sense of cosmic futility, Leconte de Lisle rejected Christianity and evoked the stoical heroism of barbarian and exotic peoples in his famous poem, uh, cycle Poems Barbares. He was also powerfully attracted to Hinduism. Following the translation of its sacred texts, in the 1840s, Maximiani felt a profound sympathy with Leconte de Lisle's view of life's fragility, the vanity of existence, and the illusion of the world. His romantic poems about the ancient Egyptians, the Scandinavians, the Celts and Hindus, their proud paganism and heroic action yet final resignation in the face of death and oblivion, confirmed her own aversion to Christianity and helped her form her own fatalistic worldview. So, goths didn't exist in the early 20th century, but, but Maximiani's clearly that. She yeah. is a proto-goth. It's again, yeah. it's just like if there had been a hot topic for her to uh, you know, be an a assistant lot manager at, a lot could yeah. have been avoided. Imagine how yeah. many hot topic um employees were saved by that business. Yeah. yeah, a lot of them. Imagine how many fascists we avoided by, for example, the existence of Kylo Ren fan fiction. There <laughs> <laughs> honestly honestly it's, it's uh, wow uh, that actually hit for me wow that hit that people people need an outlet you know and if you don't this changed. is what happens right yeah. you're just like if you can make it horny and palatable you're going to prevent something bad from this happening. was a 
a young girl who desperately needed to be distracted and nothing distracted her. And that right. is, is a problem. <laughs> yeah. And that lays out a pretty clear track for you to really, I mean, I just, yeah, send yeah. me back in time with a Jack Skellington hoodie for this woman. Mm-hmm. Oh my God, that would have <sighs> solved so many problems. I want Created to. some others. <laughs> I mean, it, I, she still would have been a deeply annoying person, but like, <laughs> I had a Jack Skellington hoodie, but also I had never mm-hmm. seen the movie. I was a total poser. Oh boy, that's going to get you canceled harder than anything else today. And then I saw the movie, and guess what? I didn't like it very much. It's fine. <laughs> I watched it's it. Fine. It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Well, actually, I don't. I yeah. Think, I think it's maybe not so good. Beautiful animation, though. Anyways. Yeah, 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 yeah. You got to judge it for its time. Uh, do I? Anyways. Oh. <laughs> it was no, for example, the little toaster. I don't know. No, I do. I do prefer toaster, the toaster. Yeah, uh, yeah. Brave little toaster. It didn't hive fuck come kids out. up. No, yeah, no, it didn't what, fuck kids up. I yeah, loved the brave, brave little, little toaster. toaster. Damaged me forever. Really? Yeah. That's why he throws oh my bagels. God. But he was yeah. so brave, Robert. He was so brave. That movie fucked me. That's up. why you throw bagels, oh right, God. Robert? I don't know. It's why I'm scared of fucking radiators. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> We've got to do some exposure therapy for you uh, with uh, with now, the brave little toaster. That's why he doesn't no, toast his just, bagels. He mm, only exactly. throws them. That's embarrassing. Exactly. I mean, that's like, like the thing. Tragic. Mm-hmm. It's tragic. Imagine so, the path we could have avoided. I know. Maximiani Portis uh, was very political as a young girl. Mm-hmm. Um, and when World War I started in 1914, she, at nine years old, knew very clearly that she did not trust the Entente powers. Um, so like England, France, you know, Russia. Uh, mm-hmm. Some of this likely came from the fact that Greece's King Constantine was very pro-German and refused to get into the war on the side of either the Entente or the Central Powers. Mm-hmm. Um, but the king of Greece's prime minister, a guy named Venizelos, um, which I'm probably mispronouncing, uh, disagreed with the king. He was very pro-British and supported Greece getting into the war. The two fought over this for years until in 1916, a group of pro-Venizelos army officers staged a coup against the king. There were rumors that the Entente had backed this, and those rumors seemed credible in light of the fact that French and British troops landed in Salonika and Athens in 1915 and 16 to force Greek compliance in their demands for military access to the Macedonian front so they could better fight Austria-Hungary. Um, that's a lot of history there, but it, basically she's very pro-Greece and wants Greece to stay out of the war because she also likes Germany, hates the English, hates the French, okay. and she's pissed off because England and France back this prime minister who wants Greece to get into the war, and they also fuck with Greek sovereignty and stuff. So and, she gets really angry over all and, this. And how old is uh, she at this point? Like, where where are we? Nine, 10, 11 years old, you wow. know, by 1916 when the Imagine, coup happens. Did you know what was going on in the world when you were nine or 10 years old? Like, how aware were you? I was pretty aware. I mean, 9 11 happened when I was like 12, and that was definitely like the start uh, of me getting political. So. I guess, yeah, I was, I was, and World so War One, yeah. You know, World War One's that level of thing, right? Where, like, mm-hmm. e- even a little kid is going to, like, you're going to pay attention to that shit. It's kind of a big deal. You won't have a fully <laughs> yeah. formed opinion, but you'll you'll know what's yeah. going on. You'll know what's going on. I guess on. I'm just, like, I, it would be so bizarre yeah. to me if someone was, like, Jamie's beliefs at eight years old was 9-11 was school got out well, early that day. And, and this is where I should note that 
this is going to be an imperfect episode in terms of that sort of thing, because our main source on this is Hitler's Priestess, which is a biography that's fairly decent, but also flawed because it's mainly based on Savitri Devi's own biographical writings of her recollections of her own life. Oh. Like, there's just not a lot of information. There's not a lot of, weren't a lot of people to go back to and like talk to about her and as a child and stuff mm-hmm. who were still alive when she became relevant. Oh, if like, I could The book could was write, written in 98. If yeah. I could write about like what I thought I thought at eight years old, I'd be like, Jamie was a brilliant genius who had strong opinions on foreign policy. Okay, got it. Well, but that said, given the, I I don't think we shouldn't (laughs) discard all of this because if you look at the thrust of her life, Mm -hmm. she does live the life of someone who's always been very political. I mean, she's too into Latin class. Sure. Yeah, exactly. That's a vibe. So, um, yeah, Venizelos and his men took over part of Greece with the backing of Britain and France, uh, mm-hmm. and those two countries were happy to recognize his government while they carried out a brutal 10-month blockade of the Greek provinces that stayed loyal to the king. And young Maximiani watched all this as she grew into an adolescent girl. Some of her earliest memories were news reports of protests from Athens of royalist crowds railing against the Entente, and Maximiani sided with them and considered the Entente's treatment of Greece to be basically criminal. Um, her disgust was reinforced after the war. In the wake of the Central Powers' defeat, the Ottoman Empire was broken up, and Greece was given control in the Versailles Treaty of a city called Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is a city on the Aegean coast of Anatolia, which is modern-day Turkey. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the center of a nearly 3,000-year-old Greek community that lived on the coast of Anatolia. Greece, with some justification, thought that a lot of Anatolia ought to be part of Greece, because it was culturally and historically Greece. And the newly created nation of Turkey did not agree. So, with the backing of the Versailles Treaty, Greece invaded Smyrna in 1919 to make good on the promises that you know had been made to them by the Entente. Okay. And the fighting was a disaster from the beginning. The Ottoman Empire had been defeated in the war, technically, but on the ground in actual battles, their soldiers had performed pretty well. They'd fought off a big invasion at Gallipoli. The birth of the Turkish nation after the fall of the Ottoman Empire was met with a swelling of nationalist fervor in Anatolia, and this helped to spawn a powerful insurgent Turkish movement dedicated to defeating the Greek invasion. Mm. So, a truce was reached in 1920, but like many recent truces in Turkish military history, it was not a real truce. And around the same time, King Constantine was restored to the Greek throne. This turned the remaining great powers of Europe against Greece, and even though they promised Greece Smyrna and the Versailles Treaty, in uh-huh. 1921, they basically like were like, fuck that shit, and do we know, pulled do all we, of their support. Do we know where the, where the Greeks at this time stood on cats? Mm. Uh... You know, they're closer to the Middle East, so I'm going to guess more pro-cat. More pro-cat. Okay. Okay. More so pro-cat. Was, so, think, okay. That yeah, tracks. I think that the, tracks. The, yeah, the further in that direction you get, more pro-cat, less pro-dog. You know, I think that's okay. generally fair. So just oh, these Greece, Western Yeah, they've got a lot of dogs. And... Yeah. I yeah, mean, yeah, everyone should right be pro-cat you know? and dog. Maybe they just lit cats and dogs on fire. I don't know. I did not do that research. <laughs> yeah. Okay, these are the questions Um, I have, Robert. Take them or leave them. (laughs) So the French and Italian governments, like, betray Greece first, and they sign agreements with the Turkish leader Mustafa Kemal to ignore the promises they'd made in the Versailles Treaty to Greece. Britain held out the longest, but when Greece uh, launched an offensive uh, in Anatolia in March of 1921, uh, all of the allies suddenly adopted a policy of neutrality. Britain banned further arms sales to Greece, while France was happy to allow its weapons makers to sell straight to Turkey. Hmm. The whole effort to incorporate the Greek regions of Anatolia into the Greek nation 
ended in disaster and military defeat in 1922. Greek forces fled Asia Minor, and the Turkish army conducted a campaign of extermination and ethnic cleansing on their Aegean coast. They massacred some 30,000 Christians, a mix of Greeks, Armenians, and Franks, in order to ensure no Greek independence movement would ever crop up on their coast again. Awesome. The Smyrna debacle, yeah, this, this is why there's no real Greek community in Anatolia anymore. Not like there was for 3,000 years prior. This is like what wipes out that community. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you can see why a Greek nationalist like Maximiani Portas, who is like 15, 16 years old then and like really actually starting to like understand the world is furious about all this. Mm-hmm. And it, it breeds in her a powerful hatred of the Entente powers, particularly of, of France and of, uh, of England. Um, and she basically felt that like all these fancy words they had about liberty and democracy were bullshit when they couldn't even hold to basic promises and protect the lives of tens of thousands of innocent Greek civilians. Of which course. Is That's a fair point. Very valid. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm not trying to like ignore the Turkish point of view in this too. Like Greece is not in the right here as a country either. Like everybody's right. in the wrong, although Turkey massacres 30,000 people. So I'm going to say maybe they're more in the wrong, but this is complicated. Yes. But this is sort of how Maximiani is very much on the side of Greece is fucked over and this is an entirely like a crime committed by the the Entente powers against against Greece. And mm-hmm. like it sets up the rest of her life in a lot of ways. Okay. Um so uh, other influences on her developing mind were the sight of French crowds in Lyon cheering uh, uproariously at the brutal terms of the Treaty of Versailles when they were announced. Mm. She was horrified uh, when the French government stationed black Senegalese troops to occupy the Ruhr, Germany's industrial heartland. Now, this is one of those moves by France that engendered a whole shitload of racism in Central Europe. Uh, it was a big influence on a lot of early Nazi thinkers, too. And obviously, black soldiers aren't any worse than white ones, but as civilians living under military occupation, you're going to hate whatever foreign soldiers occupy your country and if those soldiers are the only black people you ever met it wasn't a great move on france's behalf (laughs) jesus christ yeah so i'm I'm trying to set up all of like this is like the shit that like is forming she's 12 13 14 15 16 is all this is going on like formative fucking years yeah yeah so she hates france she hates england she hates black people she hates turkish people she's (laughs) She loves a cats. A lot more hate. She loves cats. This is the consistent cats. one. Yeah. 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 Jesus Christ. Uh, in 1923, a freshly graduated Maximiani Portis left France to attend college in Greece. She was just on the edge of 18 and furious with the status quo in Europe without any real clear idea of how she thought things ought to be instead. She mm-hmm. did, however, know that she was obsessed with Hellenism, which is like ancient Greek culture. Well, of she saw course. The old... She's, a, she's yeah. a dork. Yeah. She's a big fucking dork. She's a she dork. Loves her, She's like, wait, like, Helen of Troy? Absolutely. Oh my yes. God. Uh-huh. She would not shut up about the Iliad. She was a fucking, <laughs> you know She's that. She's like, I've read oh multiple translations and you're like, can you yeah. not? Okay. She has strong and profoundly thirsty opinions on Achilles. <laughs> <laughs> She's like ranked gods and goddesses hot yeah. to nut. If she'd seen the actual movie Troy that came out like a decade ago, she would have been furious because there's no way Brad Pitt was as hot as the Achilles in her mind. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. 
Uh, she believed the old Greeks had been, quote, a civilization of iron rooted in truth, a civilization with all the virtues of the ancient world, none of its weaknesses, and all the technical achievements of the modern age without modern hypocrisy, pettiness, mm -hmm. and moral squalor. Now, this is, of course, wildly inaccurate. Uh, the ancient Greeks were like, uh, unbelievably fucked up they also did yeah. a lot of cool shit obviously like every other ancient pretty people. common knowledge but yeah that's all ancient people do a lot of cool shit all aztecs amazing shit horribly fucked up yeah. ancient romans amazing shit han chinese ancient amazing shit horribly for everybody yeah mm -hmm. in the greek specific case uh they fucked a bunch of little kids they repeatedly put narcissistic idiots in charge of their city states they mm -hmm. made numerous blunders that ensured their period of military and economic might was short-lived and they also created some of the most influential philosophy and fiction and art that has ever been made in the history of the human race complicated people mm -hmm. um maximiani <laughs> does not get a complex picture of ancient greece it's just no. the good shit yeah mm -hmm. yeah good lord so, um you might say like i don't know like i want to say her understanding of greek history was not deep it was certainly incomplete um that said pretty much only like the only thing europeans would write about the ancient greeks in that period was wildly positive you weren't going to get like critical like commentary on for example pederasty in ancient greece in <laughs> yeah. fucking 1920 like it's, you're just not going to read that <laughs> mm -hmm. um yeah so her love of greece was mostly focused on obsessing over their incredible art uh and yeah, fantasizing just... about the idealized culture that she believed had existed there right yeah. i mean this i mean we, we as children all read revisionist history about horrifying yes. cultures I was obsessed with ancient Rome as Who a kid for a lot us? of the same reasons. Of yeah. course, because you were just like, oh, it seems like they only did dope stuff and wore cool outfits. Well, I will say I was kind of a fucked up kid. So when I learned about like all of the fucking crucifixions and shit, I was kind of like, hell yeah. Wow, yeah. Robert, you're so metal. I mean, I, it is <laughs> pretty so, fucking metal. You're so fucking metal. <laughs> we'll talk about what they did to Spartacus and his friends one of these days, but Aww. it's fucking one of like the biggest mic drop moments in the history of torturing people to death with wood. Um, I think that's fair to say. <laughs> Thrilled to have such a hyper specific. Perspective. Um, so she moves to Greece. She's super happy for a while. Obviously best place in the world for this girl is fucking Greece at this point in time. Um, and the time she spent discovering the wonders of Athens, which rules, um, coincided with some very important goings on in Germany. And I'm going to quote again from the book Hitler's Priestess. Quote, mm -hmm. years later, she would recall that she spent such a sunlit afternoon upon the Acropolis on 9th October 1923, the fateful day of Hitler's putsch when he and his followers had attempted a coup against the Bavarian government and staged a march to the Feldherrenhall in the center of Munich. The police successfully broke up the march, and 16 martyrs of the early Nazi movement fell beneath a hail of bullets. When details of the incident were published in the world press the following day, there was some discussion over lunch at the International Home Hostel, which is where she was crashing at the time. Maximiani admits that she did not yet connect Hitler with her own dream of a new racial order based on her view of classical Greek antiquity. However, she strongly sympathized with him as an, an, an enemy of the Allies on account of his contempt for the Versailles Treaty and saw a parallel between his nationalist idea of one state for all Germans and the Magali idea among the Greeks, which is the idea that like Greece should recoup its ancient like power and like take over the places it had controlled back in the day. Oh, seems she engaged a little in a heated argument. Yeah. Okay. She engaged in a heated argument in defense of Hitler with the French manageress of the hostel. Oh, so, God. So we've lost Arguing her. She's about gone. Hitler she's with gone. a hostel. No, we lost her with the I mean, the she's been thing, gone for a while. Yeah. Good Lord. But you know who 
won't argue in support of Hitler with the French hostel owner in Athens. Who, Jamie. Robert? The products and services that support this podcast. Products and services would never, ever hurt us or do something wrong. I've been saying it for years. I have all agreed for years. Let, fingers crossed for a dick pill ad right after this. Yeah. What a great Oof, transition, both of you. <laughs> Just you. wonderful work. Thank you. So Thank talented. You. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. It's just a shame, you know, that they took him from us. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, knocking on doors, uncovering new evidence, including the DNA of a potential killer. Uh, My name is Danny Smith. I'm a detective uh, with Miramar Police Department. This is Scott Weinberger. We're actually reopening an old case, and your name came up. Untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one murder, but almost a dozen. I thought they were going to kill me, so I kept my mouth shut, and I didn't say anything. All these years, I didn't say anything. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. 
Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We're back. So, it was during this first visit to Greece that Maximiani Portis would have seen the symbol for the first time that would come to define her life and legacy. Mm-hmm. I am talking, of course, about the swastika. Odds are good she would have encountered it for the first time in the National Museum of Athens, which hosted a huge amount of what were believed to be Trojan artifacts, which had been uncovered by the pioneering and controversial archaeologist Heinrich Schliemann. Now, Schliemann was not a professional archaeologist, which is not weird for the time. Most of like the archaeologists of this period are like gentlemen adventurers who right, just, I mean, like, get our nerds basically. The people and start in digging. the people in like the mummy movies who are just wearing yeah, khakis and exactly, have money. Exactly. The people in Tarzan. That was the most accurate thing about the mummy movie, other than the way mummies react to shotguns. They're all um, <laughs> they're all named Clayton. Yeah. 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 So Schliemann, uh, yeah, throughout the mid-1800s had been a very successful German arms merchant, uh, trading raw materials for the ingredients to make ammunition. Um, And he'd nursed a deep obsession with the Iliad his entire life. In his late middle age, he decided to take his fortune to the Aegean and try to uncover the true location of the ancient city of Troy. Unlike pretty much any, like traditional archaeologist schliemann used the iliad as a guide he thought this book was like basically essentially accurate um and he followed the poem as if it had been a work of serious historical scholarship and shockingly enough this kind of worked in 1871 after three years of searching schliemann found what was very likely to have been the site of ancient troy his methods of digging it up were brutal he used crowbars and battering rams and destroyed countless thousands of artifacts including ironically what a lot of archaeologists now believe was the actual physical evidence of Troy. He dug too far down, basically, because he was he fucked up and probably destroyed what actual Trojan relics there were. But he does I find mean, what a lot of people think was the site of Troy. It's just other shit was built there and he dug up the wrong shit. Anyway, it's fucked up. Yes. Uh, yes. So... Uh, his research, uh, or his digging, despite all the shit it destroyed, produced hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of artifacts, which people at the time believed to be Trojan. And many of those artifacts, more than 1,800 of them, were emblazoned with various types of swastika. Oh. And I'm going to quote next from Scientific American. He would go on to see the swastika everywhere, from Tibet to Paraguay to the Gold Coast of Africa. And as Schliemann's exploits grew more famous and archaeological discoveries became a way of creating a narrative of national identity, the swastika grew more prominent. It exploded in popularity as a symbol of good fortune, appearing on Coca-Cola products, Boy Scouts and Girls Club materials, and even American military uniforms. The antiquities unearthed by Dr. Schliemann at Troy acquire for us a double interest, wrote British linguist Archibald Sace in 1896. They carry us back to the later stone ages of the Aryan race. Oh dear. On Coca-Cola yeah. products? Robert, well, what again, if that was just to... a product or service advertised? But it wasn't a Nazi. It's you like I, I spent some time living in India and it's yeah. fucking there's swastikas all over the day. And it, it is weird. It takes you never really get used to it because of like what it means to the West. It's always like 
there's so many swastikas around here. That is, I mean, and that is fascinating to yeah. like track the history yeah. of a symbol and like how it affects different areas of the world differently. That sounds yeah. extremely jarring. I, I actually, I have some like tapestries that I picked up in India that have little swastikas on them in parts. And it's one of those things where it's like, Every now and then, like they're not the same as the Nazi swastikas, but they're close enough that people will be like, "What's up? Uh, oh no, <laughs> yeah, hi what's Robert, going on there? <laughs> I need to leave your home right now." Um, yeah, I mean, they're yeah. You're like, oh no, most people the swastikas are pretty small. It's so Indian. Most people aren't getting close they're, enough they're, to the blanket. They're not no. Nazi ones. They're, oh they're my not Nazi God. swastikas. See, Robert, if I was over your house and you said that, I would be like, "I actually, my Uber is here." You know, like mm-hmm. if you're like, they're not nasty swast- Nazi swastikas, so uh, calm down. Yeah, it's like that. Uh, and they yeah, offer me yeah. a Miller Lite. <laughs> <laughs> they're not Nazi now, swastikas. Would you like a Miller Lite? No. That's exactly no, my no, standard no. greeting to people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's how you yeah. greet all your guests. That's specifically how I say to hello to the officers who pull me over for speeding. <laughs> no, no. I would be interested in. I I know I've gone down that Wikipedia hole at at one point of just like tracking the symbol the symbology of the swastika. Yeah, it's it goes back like, so far. Schliemann, there's criticism of Schleeman honestly for his methods, but he's not in any way a Nazi. Like he's just a guy who finds a bunch of swastikas buried underground, and he's just an unqualified archaeologist using his money in a weird way. He's he's very controversial still. There are aspects of what he did that a lot of people praise because he he got a lot of shit right, but he also destroyed a huge amount of cultural antiquities. He's an interesting person. You should read about Schliemann if That's you're inter- interested in archaeology. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. God damn. I mean, it yeah, seems like a lot complex. of those gentlemen yeah. explorers really delighted in, you know, like yes. destroying and selling off pieces of ancient history that had nothing to do with them. All of them are problematic. Yeah. Um, I will say Schliemann is one who comes from like a purer place of just being really into this history. Um, But yeah, you know, they're all problematic. So hashtag problematic. Yeah. Now the, uh, the swastikas he found increasingly all over the world played directly into a shared delusion that was spreading like a disease among many of the era's white people. The myth of the ancient Aryan. Now, in actual historical terms, Aryan is a term used to refer to the Indo-Aryan language group. It was never a racial classification. The term started being used because early linguists noticed strange similarities between uh, languages like German, Romani, Punjabi, Hindu, Urdu, and Sanskrit. While the term Aryan was initially applied to speakers of various Indo-Iranian languages, the understanding of the word became corrupted in the late 1800s. This occurred along the same time that colonialism started to reach its absolute zenith and there were a lot of white folks looking for reasons to justify the fact that they were basically plundering and enslaving the entire world. There were also a lot of white folks looking at their increasingly multiracial societies, which at that point like meant Italians and Slavs breeding with Germans and British people, and were getting concerned about this fact. Mm. Uh, and I'm going to refer back to Smithsonian Magazine again. Quote, The rising interest in eugenics and racial hygiene, however, led some to corrupt Aryan into a descriptor for an ancient master racial identity with a clear through line to contemporary Germany. As the Washington Post reported in a story about the rise of Nazism several years before the start of World War II, Aryanism was an intellectual dispute between bewhiskered scholars as to the existence of a pure and undefiled Aryan race at one stage of Earth's history. In the 19th century, French aristocrat Arthur de Gobineau and others made the connection between the mythical Aryans and the Germans. 
Germans, who were the superior descendants of the early people, now destined to lead the world to greater advancement by conquering their neighbors. The findings of Schliemann's dig in Turkey, then, suddenly had a deeper ideological meaning. For the nationalists, the purely Aryan symbol Schliemann uncovered was no longer an archaeological mystery. It was a stand-in for their superiority. German nationalist groups like the Reichschammerbund, a 1912 anti-Semitic group, and the Bavarian Freikorps, paramilitary, basically the Proud Boys of the era, um, used the swastika to reflect their newly discovered identity as the master race. Now, the reality is that swastikas appear damn near everywhere in human history. It's a common design and a striking one, and a bunch of different groups of people have independently figured it out over time. And people should stop talking to you about your blanket and actually just relax. They're pretty small. If you're if, uh, <laughs> nowadays, the swastika is the swastika. Like it's a Nazi thing, unless you're yeah. in India, um, because the world's big. Um, but back in these days, like if you're looking at like ancient history, it's best to kind of look at the swastika. Like you remember that weird S doodle we all put on our trapper keepers back in the nineties? Hundred percent, yes. Like no one invented that; it just showed up everywhere. That's mm-hmm. the fucking swastika in prehistory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just all over the damn place. I would get that, but blanket. of course, yeah. It, uh, oh, I have that blanket. Um, <laughs> yeah. It was not seen as this, though, um, by right. a lot of people. And anthropologist Gwendolyn Lake notes, quote, when Heinrich Schliemann discovered swastika-like decorations on pottery fragments and all archaeological levels at Troy, it was seen as evidence for a racial continuity and proof that the inhabitants of the site had been Aryan all along. The link between the swastika and Indo-European origin, once forged, was impossible to discard. It allowed the projection of nationalist feelings and associations onto a universal symbol, which hence served as a distinguishing boundary marker between non-Aryan, or rather non-German, and German identity." That's fascinating. So, that I mean, yes. because you can understand the logic, but it also is kind of absurd to assume that, like, oh, this yes. symbol is always surely must mean the exact same thing thousands of years ago as it does to me today. Now, the people then were as dumb as the people who planned the Iowa caucuses. Wow, you know? <laughs> and that's why all this happened, Robert. My yeah. my dog worked on the Shadow app, so really watch your mouth. <laughs> your dog that was is the sunny. person wow. involved with that app. Sunny invested in the Shadow app. I have to say it. Wow, bad dog. This, this all this He's math adds dog. up. Yeah, I mean, of course yeah. he kept he was talking about Shadow app for, and I'm like, that can't be real. And then he probably thought it was, it was the dog from uh, uh, what was that movie with the do- the dogs and cat that talk and they find their family. I'm oh, so bad at the names terrible. of things today. I don't and know. It's what a good that movie. movie. Homeward Bound. Homeward. Movie. Oh, I haven't seen Homeward Bound. Sonny definitely uh, just wanted to harm people and he wanted to harm the discourse and yeah. that's why he invested in Shadow App. Word. That's fair. That's yeah. fair. Go you off could call him the Hitler of the Iowa caucuses, which a lot no. of people do. <laughs> I mean, many have, so, but it makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> Sitting in Athens, reading the news of Hitler's movement in Germany and staring at ancient swastikas on beloved Greek artifacts, things started to come together in Maximiani Portis's mind. She moved to Greece permanently in 1928 after finishing college and renouncing her French citizenship. The very next year, 1929, she went with her mother and aunt on a trip to the Holy Land that wound up having just as deep an impact on her developing mind as the swastika. Now, Maximiani had never been very religious. Her mother and aunt were, though, and while they failed to inculcate a love of Christ in Maximiani, they did succeed in making her hate Jewish people. Um, Yay! Which is not the part of Christianity to transfer, if you're going to pick one. Of all, I mean, there's so many different horrible things to take away from Christianity, and that is 
Um, that is the worst of all. Yeah. That's bad. Yeah. Jesus. She got none of the good stuff, just the anti-Semitism. Um, uh, okay. Yeah. She, um, yeah, it's not great. It's not so, great. Um, I'm starting to think this lady, maybe not in, uh, so nice. N- not heading in a great direction. Yeah. Mm. Now, a lot of this was tied to the fact that Maximiani was so in love with Greek culture. And she was really pissed off because she was like particularly in love with like ancient Greek pagan culture, like the old Greek gods and their myths and stuff. And none of that stuff was very relevant other than as like an academic thing by this point in history. And Christianity and Judaism were obviously hugely relevant in Europe. And she hated this. And she blamed the Jews for the fact that nobody, other people weren't as into Greek history as she was. Like this is like the core of it for her. It's like she's in love with like Zeus and shit. And she's like, why don't people like this as much as I do? It's the Jews. She's becoming chaos yeah. nerd no yeah yeah oh, it's great it's not great yeah now, that's really bad so her trip to the holy land with her mom and aunt was a bit of a weird one <laughs> no okay i mean yeah. okay i'm listening yeah she was revolted by the obeisance they played to Judeo-Christian holy sites, and as she touristed her way through Old Jerusalem, she felt, in her biographer's words, overwhelmed and repelled by the exotic nature of the Jews, their attire, their customs, observances, and festivals, the strange, dark men in broad-brimmed hats and long black coats hastening to prayers at the uh, Wailing Wall. Okay. Now, it's interesting Ew. that... Goodwin Clark, Portis's biographer, mentions this specifically, seeing these Jewish people and being like horrified by the way they look in their coats and, and hairlocks and long black coats. Yeah. It's possible that precise moment never happened, but it's worth noting that this moment bears a striking resemblance to a tale Adolf Hitler told regularly about the supposed moment that he specifically gained his hatred of Jewish people. And here's how he wrote about that moment in Mein Kampf. This is, takes place in Linz, I th- no, sorry, in Austria. Maybe his boy wrote Um, this part. uh, We don't know. uh, Vienna. Once as I was strolling through the inner city, I suddenly encountered an apparition in a black caftan and black hair locks. Is this a Jew? Was my first thought. For to be sure, they had not looked like that in Linz, where he grew up. I observed the man furtively and cautiously, but the longer I stared at this foreign face, scrutinizing feature for feature, the more my first question assumed a new form. Is this a German? This is like a huge moment in like Hitler lore. It's possible that the reason that that Portis writes her own thing, like her own story this way, is that she's hearkening to Mein Kampf, because again, she writes about this later. It's also yeah. possible they just were similar people and had a similar moment, Well, if, she, xenophobes. If, she, if she's the primary yeah. resource for herself um, she and seems to have yep. like a fair grasp on storytelling, it makes sense that she would pull it from It does these. make sense. She's it like, oh, this sense. is the end of Act One. Where's my exactly. inciting? She needs. She wrote her own inciting incident. If it didn't, yeah, know. I'll I'll take a leaf out of you know. It's like uh, you know George Lucas uh, stole from from great Japanese cinema uh, to make Star Wars, mm-hmm. and in a very similar fashion, Savitri Devi stole from Adolf Hitler, uh, the Kurosawa Art- of Nazis. True artists yeah. steal, Robert. <laughs> it's what they. <laughs> Yeah. It's what they've been saying for generations. Yeah, that is funny. I mean, I feel like that same logic of like you have to have a story to go with your hatred. Yeah. They they have that same yeah. logic on like Iron Chef, you know, like you ha- they yes. have to be like there has to be a story that goes with this dish and sometimes you're like sometimes it just is. Sometimes it sometimes just Sometimes you just cook some really fucking bad. food, asshole. Yeah. Sometimes you just make some food and it's bad. And it's terrible. Yeah. So, 
Maximiani would go on to claim that after this visit to the Holy Land, uh, she decided that Hitler's campaign of hate against Jewish people was not just a matter of German concern. It was an international crusade. She came to believe that all of the formerly pagan nations of Europe had to throw off their Judeo-Christian heritage and like reconnect with their pagan roots. Um, and this is the first time she realizes that she's a national socialist. And she, the way she describes it, she realizes she's always been a national socialist. And so she falls fully in love with Hitler at this point. Um, and she's not a German Nazi, though. And initially, the way she decides to like act on this newfound Nazism is to basically try to revive Greek nationalism and pagan beliefs kind of with the structure of national socialism over them. Mm -hmm. And so she returns to Athens and she sets to work trying to cobble together her own Greek version of Nazism, but focused around a religious component that involved a return to worshiping the ancient Greek pantheon. I mean, always Um, with this woman. Yeah. Uh, Now, by this point, the ancient Greeks had become sort of the ubermensch in her own mind, and this conception was nursed by the bits of Hitler speeches that made their way over into the press in her part of the world. By 1930, she finally read Mein Kampf for the very first time, which introduced Maximiani to Hitler's theories about the Aryan race. His ideas about the superior race, consistently undermined by the evil Jews, gelled remarkably well with Maximiani's own beliefs about the ancient Greeks and the Jews. She became increasingly obsessed with the Aryans, and in part the idea of seeking out the remaining evidence of their existence. And at the time, it was generally understood that India had been conquered and ruled by the Aryans. Many among the weirder Nazi sets saw Hinduism as an example of a pure Aryan pagan tradition, uncorrupted by Judaism. They found the Hindu caste system deeply intriguing as well for reasons that should be obvious. It enshrined a small number of superior beings and power over a vast number of less valuable individuals. Mm-hmm. In 1932... Maximiani's father died, and she decided to take this as an opportunity to travel to India to seek out the truth of the ancient Aryans. It's like a Nazi version of Eat, Pray, Love. I was was Um, going to say, this is like, this is, in another world, this is a very cute movie, and she just took every wrong cue from it. It's the same You remember that horrible Cameron Crowe movie, Elizabethtown, where Orlando Bloom drives across the country with his dad's (laughs) ashes, and is like, I'm glad we had this talk. And you're like, what the fuck are you doing? That sounds like four. Forty different movies, Jamie. It's uh, no, it's the same. It's the same. Yeah, all my Elizabethtown heads will know it's the same. Paula Deen's so, in that movie. Uh, <laughs> Cursed. Oh God! Cursed. Speaking of Nazis. <laughs> now, um, so Savitri decides she's going to go to fucking India, and she's not the only person with this idea of going to India to seek out the Aryans. In fact, in 1935, Heinrich Himmler's SS founded the Anunnaki. Uh, a scientific think tank dedicated to finding evidence of the ancient Aryans, and they actually sent multiple expeditions into India and Tibet. Uh, Maximiani went to India to find evidence of the Aryans too, but she also went there to see firsthand evidence of a civilization founded upon what she believed was a natural racial hierarchy. Mm -hmm. She felt that Indian society looked how the world would appear in the year 8,000 after 6,000 years of Nazi rule. Ah! Very specific woman. 8,000? The Jonas Brothers didn't even think that far. (laughs) No, but they're huge. The Nazi Jonas Brothers are huge in the year. Robert, shut up. Enjoy this moment. That was that was for that was that one was. I do not get that joke. The Jonas Brothers' first single in two thousand six or maybe seven was a song called Year Three Thousand. 
they said not much has changed but we live underwater that's all they knew about that's a lot to change jamie (laughs) well they say right before we live underwater that not much has changed they it's like it's the year 3000 not much has changed i've been the cats are in charge no, I can't do anything change, else. I don't live know the underwater. It's a weird no, 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 lyric. No. It makes no sense. Okay, sorry, Robert. Continue your podcast. But she's thinking to eight, you're 8,000. 8,000. I refuse Very to think far. further she's, than Kevin Jonas she already is, has. You, you have to give her credit. She is eight times as ambitious as Hitler. Dear <laughs> <laughs> God. Yeah. 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 Um, so, upon her arrival in the country, her beliefs were seemingly confirmed when she watched a parade celebrating Rama, a deified Aryan hero. The parade featured huge numbers of dark-skinned Indians bowing and worshipping a lighter-skinned statue of Rama. And Rama is most assuredly not white, although he is often depicted as lighter-skinned, mm-hmm. but he is he's definitely Indian. Um but it was not uncommon for Europeans who were attracted to India in this period to decide that a number of ancient Hindu heroes and gods were in fact white. Um, this was like a common thing. And in fact, Maximiani's favorite poet, who we talked about earlier, Leconte de Lisle, had actually written a poem about Rama that referred to him as, Thou whose blood is pure, thou whose body is white, and uh, a subduer of all the profane races. Hmm. So, yeah. Everyone's a little bit of a Nazi in colonialism. That's kind of the deal. <laughs> it's kind of their yeah. thing. It's kind of, I yeah. mean, I, th- yeah, not shocking. And if you're if you're interested in the story of Rama, one thing I would recommend that's super accessible, there's a movie online by uh, Nina Paley, who's a female graphic artist who's amazing, called Sita Sings the Blues. If you just Google that, it's the whole movie's free. It's one of those beautiful pieces of animation. It's why I went to India in the first place. It's an incredible movie. Oh, wow. Um, and one of the things it does really well is it has all these scenes where like individual like myths from like Hindu mythology are explained by like groups of people arguing about them, which if you actually go to India is how you learn about myths. Like if you talk about the myth of Sita and Rama to like a family, everyone in the family, you'll like get like multiple different versions of the story and people will argue with each other. Like it's not like Christian orthodoxy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Like it's very, very complicated stuff, but fascinating. Um, huh. So, yeah, Maximiani is convinced that this guy's white, though. Um, and she falls in love with India um, and eventually finds her way to an ashram in Bengal, uh, where she's able to live cheap and learn Hindi and study Hindu religious traditions. Mm-hmm. She gets a job outside of Delhi teaching English and Indian history. And she grew more and more taken with Hinduism until in 1936, she adopted a Hindu name, Savitri Devi, taken from a Hindu solar goddess. This woman is f- obsessed with sun she- gods and goddesses. She loves gods and goddesses so yeah. much. She's such a dork. Yeah, it's specifically sun gods and goddesses. She's fucking obsessed with Akhenaten, too. It's weird. There was a now, girl in my middle school who was like, call me Artemis. And we were like, no. Okay. No. No, no. we did. We did. And, our, and, mm-hmm. and, and if I was also a dork, but not that kind of dork. No. My God. No, no, no. I was just a normal, now, bright eyes loving dork. I'm I'm a big believer in calling people by whatever name they prefer to be referred to, unless it's the name of a god or goddess. Then I just start. Like, I just get furious. Yeah, well, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna push that behavior. Well, yeah. she was she was Artemis for all of eighth grade, and then she went back to uh, just just Alex for the rest of that's, as far as I know her life. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. Any other name, really. Mm-hmm. Now. 
Early on in her time in India, Savitri had hiked to the top of a hill and seen a beautiful Indian fortress, one of many such colossal ancient relics that dot the country. She was taken by its beauty, and equally horrified by a more modern Jesuit hospital that had been constructed nearby. This was powerfully symbolic to her, and she claimed that it cemented in her a deep need to protect Hindu India from being infected by Judeo-Christian taint. Starting in 1937, she began working as an anti-Christian preacher for Swami Satyananda's Hindu mission in Calcutta. For two years, she crisscrossed the country, meeting with various tribal elders and arranging public debates with Christian missionaries. And I'd like to quote now from an article by Conrad Elst, an Indiologist who's analyzed this history. Quote, Thoroughly familiar with the mentality and methods of her adversary, she could destroy the credit of the imported religion in the minds of the villagers, and prevent or undo many conversions. There was a sharp contradiction between her own racist and anti-egalitarian convictions and the reformist and egalitarian program of the Hindu mission. To the Hindu mission, Hinduism was a value in itself. To Savitri Devi, it was but an instrument of her imagined Aryan race. In her years as a preacher... She kept her non-Hindu preoccupations to herself, but in her memoirs, uh, she declared that she conceived of her reconversion mission as an exercise in deception. From the racist Aryan viewpoint, it was necessary to give the most backward and degenerate Aborigines a false Hindu consciousness, she wrote. This is one of the major areas where you'll run into disputes about Savitri Devi. The common view on her legacy is, spoiler, that she proposed a synthesis between Hinduism and Nazism, and aspects of this are true, but it would be more accurate to say that she found Hinduism a useful tool for advancing Nazism. Um, And I'm going to quote again from Elst's essay. In contrast with the Hindu nationalists, but in tune with Indian Marxists and castists, she believed that the concept nation and a program of nationalism could not apply to India. In 1938, she used the slogan, make every Hindu an Indian nationalist and every Indian nationalist a Hindu. Now, this seems to be something she did not legitimately. Yeah. And she didn't really believe it. In her autobiography years later, she expressed the belief that nationalism could only exist within members of the same race. And she thought that all the different castes in India were different races. And we're getting into the weeds here too much. But it's important to understand for what comes next that Savitri Devi advocated for Hindu nationalism, but not because she believed strongly in it, because she saw it as a useful tool for harming the British Empire and advancing Nazism. That was her main goal. So she's merely co-opting it for her own sinister purposes. It's a little more complicated than that because she also loves it. Like she's, she's takes on a lot of Hindu beliefs. It's, this is a weird story and there's no like super simple answer to it, but it's not as simple as she just becomes Hindu and also Nazi. Like it's weirder than that too. Hmm. No one edit this out. I need people to know what (laughs) what I've been forced to endure. You just like literally did that that into the microphone. Literally, it was hard. I I had to. I'm sorry. I can see Robert right now, and he wiped his nose on the mic, and he was like licked it, and then (laughs) licked it. You licked Robert Evans. He licked it. All of this gets edited out (laughs) now. Many Hindu nationalists were very bullish about the Nazis because Great Britain owned India and ruled it as a brutal colonial oppressor, and they figured, you know, the enemy of my enemy, right? Yeah. Uh, Not all of them felt this way. There were a lot of Hindu nationalists who were against the Nazis because they were like, well, but they're Nazis. Um, so again, uh, yeah. I want to paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Savitri got along very well with the set of Hindu nationalists who were like, yeah, the Nazis seem good. Um, okay. and she was particularly taken with Dr. Asit Krishna Mukherjee, one of India's few actual committed Nazis. 
1937 and 38, Mukherjee started to publish a bi-monthly pro-Nazi magazine, The New Mercury. Savitri met him in early 1938, and they didn't instantly fall in love, um, but she fell in love with like his mind. She was probably bisexual, uh, um, but certainly wasn't interested in Mukherjee in any way. But she falls in love with like this guy's Nazism, basically. They're that kind of attached. So they're an... In- the- God, that's so... I mean... Hmm. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, that's bleak, because it's like... Yeah. I mean, if you're going to marry a Nazi... And they're, you're not even attracted to them? No excuse. No excuse either yeah, way, but you know what I mean. She has a little bit of an excuse, but we're getting to it. So You are cutting this lo- lady all kinds of slack, Robert. I'm just explaining her. Do you have a crush? Um, now, <laughs> she, so she, she doesn't, they don't get together right away. She loves his understanding of Nazi ideology, and particularly his emphasis on the myths of the old Aryans. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mukherjee was like obsessed with the Thule Society, the Tula Society, and it acquired a lot of their occult writings. So he's like that kind of nerd. Okay. And Mukherjee seems to like genuinely appreciate Savitri's ideas and the fact that she was just as much of a nerd for Nazism as he was. But he was baffled by her insistence on staying in India while Nazi Germany like rose to the heights of its power. Uh, in early 1939, he asked her, what have you been doing? in India all these years with your ideas and your potentialities, wasting your time and energy. Go back to Europe where duty calls you. Go and help the rebirth of Aryan heathendom where there are still Aryans strong and wide awake. Go to him who is truly life and resurrection, the leader of the Third Reich. Go at once. Next year will be too late. And he was kind of right about that. But Savitri was convinced that she could do... Yeah. 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 I'm like, well, historically, okay. Yeah. Savitri, though, was convinced that she could do more for the cause of Nazism in India than in Germany. She'd become close with members of the Rashtriya Swayamsavak Sangh, or RSS, an Indi- a Hindu nationalist movement that were very similar to the Nazis. The founder, or one of the founders, K.B. Hedgewar, formed the group to defend Hindu society from daily onslaughts by outsiders, and he included Muslim Indians as members of that group. Like all fascist organizations, the RSS had a uniform, khaki shorts, a white shirt, and a black cap. RSS members met daily to train with bamboo beat sticks called lathis and to learn about Hindutva, Hindu nationalism. In 1939, Savitri wrote A Warning to the Hindus. The book's foreword was written by G.D. Savarkar, brother to one of the co-founders of the RSS. And according to an article by South Asian affairs analyst Peter Friedrich, quote, Devi advanced V.D. Savarkar's thesis of Hindutva, that India is a Hindu nation of Hindu people and only for Hindu people. She claimed that Hindu society is India itself, called Hinduism the national religion of India, and suggested that Hindus should tell non-Hindus, we represent India, not you. Therefore, India is ours, not yours. She urged Hindus to recover, along with their national consciousness, their military virtues of old, to re-become a military race. The method, she said, should be the organization of the young men and pledge-bound military-like batches with Hindu nationalism as their only ideal. And here's where I pause to note that the current Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, is a member of the RSS. A warning to Hindus is still considered to be a deeply influential text within the Hindu nationalist movement and the RSS. Modi probably read it as a child. And a list of his crimes and the thousands of murders and mosque bombings and beatings carried out by Hindu nationalists against Indian Muslims would go beyond the scope of this episode. Mm -hmm. But it is worth noting that the current authoritarian lurch by India, the world's largest democracy, owes at least a decent amount to the work of Savitri Devi. So that's cool. 
You're in love with her, Robert. Oh, my God. I mean, it is a sign of where this is going that I kind of glossed over the fact that she played a role in the establishment of uh, what's starting to become a fascist dictatorship in India. Uh Uh-huh. We Uh just have so much extra ground to cover. (laughs) We have so much to cover. We don't have time for the fascist dictatorship today. We have some time, but we have yeah. okay, okay. Well, we'll make time. We'll make time for the fascist. In 1940, Britain and Germany went to war. Savitri's extremist beliefs were well known at this point, and she was forced to marry Mukherjee in order to stay in the country. So that's why they get married. It's a oh, it's basically okay. a green card thing. Yeah, got it. Uh, she described it as a sexless marriage, uh, primarily to allow her to stay in the country, mm-hmm. and she did what she could for Nazism while in India, spying on British military positions for the Axis and facilitating communication between Subhas Chandra Bose, leader of the National Indian Army, a pro-Axis group, and the Japanese government. In a different world, these contributions might have played a role in a Japanese invasion of India. But World War II went the way it did, and Hitler eventually shot himself in a bunker to avoid capture. I'm familiar Savitri with this. Savitri learned of his death through an overheard conversation from two Muslim men on the Marabar coast. She was inconsolable for days over the death of her hero and the end of the belief system she had dedicated her life to championing. But Mukherjee told her not to worry. This was merely part of the cycle of ages, and the dark age brought on by Hitler's defeat would, someday, end. And likewise, Jamie... Part uh-huh. one of this episode must now end. Okay. But this dark age will continue <laughs> on Thursday with oh. part two of the story of Savitri Devi. No. Okay. <laughs> how, you, how you doing, Jamie? I'm okay. I'm just unclenching. <laughs> That's for, important. For the next two minutes and then we got to talk about it again. <laughs> I got to ABK. Always be clenching. Yeah, go, go, go plug your pluggables first. Oh, right. Uh, leave that in. I want people to know that yeah, no, I had to pee. Overshare. I had to pee. And yeah. also leave in Robert blowing his nose on the mic and yeah, licking Chris, it off. Chris, leave that in. You can edit no, out. that's going to be horrible. Chris, you can edit out the part where Robert is like, yum, delicious <laughs> after licking his own snot off the mic, but everything else should probably stay in. I feel like this is legally abuse. (laughs) You could probably report me to HR. Could be fun. Mm -hmm. Could be fun. My Twitter is (laughs) Jamie Loftus Help. And my Instagram is at Jamie Christ Superstar. And I'm touring for the better part of February. You can go to my website, jamieloftusisinnocent.com to find out where. Yay. Yeah. And you can find Sophie on twitter yes. by finding her at y underscore sophie underscore y and that's it that's all you can find of us online which are on behind the bastards.com including the full free text of hitler's priestess if you want to read this book mm-hmm. um the episode's over go stop the french from murdering cats yes great This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. 
Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. And like always, we'll be here every week. You'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics. Nothing is off the table. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.